I mean, the hardest thing for me, Huck, has just been work from home. I mean, what a ridiculous concept for someone who left school when they were 15 to cook and make people happy. You know, it's, 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 it's the most foreign concept in the world. People that say they love it, are good on them. If you, if you can put yourself through this and enjoy it, then I have amazing respect for you. I can't, I need to be around humans. And then you want to be cooking and stuff, right? This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Australia has a unique connection with Thailand. It's a place many Australians love to explore while travelling, and it's a cuisine that has helped shape the modern culinary landscape of Australia, particularly in Sydney, where Newtown's King Street had more Thai restaurants on a single strip than any other place on earth apart from Bangkok. Why is that connection so strong? Daniel Masters is the executive chef of the Standard Hotel in Bangkok. Daniel, how are you going? Yeah, good day, mate. Very well, you? Good. Uh, what's it like in Thailand at the moment? Uh, mate, it's not great. Uh, but to be fair, we feel like there's a proper light at the end of the tunnel finally. We've been in the proper hard lockdown as, I mean, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra yourself. Most of the world's been, we've been in ours, this, this is our third one, which we've been in since April the 19th. Uh, there's been some really positive really positive news the last couple of days that there'll hopefully be some restrictions lifting in the in the next in the coming weeks. So we're all just really waiting on that, to be honest. What sort of impact has it had on on what you do? Mate, it's been massive. I mean, I originally I got a, I got to Bangkok November twenty nineteen, so I had three months of Bangkok as it is as it's meant to be, as it's meant to be enjoyed, uh, before COVID first sort of hit and Thailand, as everyone knows, was the first country out of China to record a COVID case. Uh, it handled it handled it handled the first bit really, really well. I mean, and it was sort of seen as a beacon in the world as how to do it. Um, then the third wave hit, and it's been really, really hard. Um, I came over here originally working at the Waldorf Astoria, uh, and then got the opportunity to move over to the Standard. Uh, which sort of was quite serendipitous, if you will. And so I got the opportunity to do that and really took it and have jumped at that. We're in pre-opening at the moment, so we're not as affected as a lot of places have been, Um, but it's all about how we're going to bounce back once they start reopening the borders and stuff. What lured you to Thailand in the first place? Mate, I've been in Perth for nine years working with Neil at Rockpool, a bar and grill, which was an amazing opportunity. I mean, I love Neil. I've worked for him all up in my life for about 12 years, which is just fantastic. He's the world's greatest guy, one of the world's best chefs. He really is. I mean, mate, there's very few people in the world that, talk the talk and then walk the walk, you know what I mean? He's an absolute legend of a bloke. And I feel really privileged to have spent the amount of time I did with him. Um, but then it got to the point, I mean, Perth's also a great little country town, um, which is now, it's now, it's come along really well, right? You know, the restaurant and bar scene there is pretty vibrant and they're the only ones that don't have to wear masks in Australia at the moment, aren't they? And they can, they, they can go to the footy and then go to a restaurant. So they've done something right. Um, and then, yeah, so I got the opportunity, I was up, we did a rock pool bar and grill pop up at the Paddock Club, <clears throat> uh, the Singapore Grand Prix a few years ago. I was chatting to a mate of mine and talking about what's going on. And I mean, I got to the point after being with at Bar and Grill Perth for nine years that I really I've been wanting to get into hotels a little bit. And so I got the opportunity at the Waldorf, and I thought, you know what, there's not going to be many many better opportunities to walk straight into than that. So I, I took it. And you said that you got to experience the real Bangkok for a couple of months before COVID hit. Um, what was it that you loved about uh, the energy of that city? 
Mate, the vibrancy here, you can't put your finger on it. For people who have been here know it and love it. I mean, just the incredible things where you, you, you jump on the back of a motorbike to go anywhere, you know, things that you just would not do in Australia. And you get arrested for doing it in Australia. I mean, tearing down <clears throat> tearing down a freeway at 100 k's now on the back of a motorbike with no helmet on. I mean, I know it doesn't sound all that sustainable or smart, <clears throat> but, hey, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, going out and eating re- the street food vendors that pop up all throughout the night that stay open until really late in the night. You go out drinking, go out hanging out, and then everyone goes and eats together. Um, the bars and all those sorts of places that you, you just go and hang out. And the restaurant and the food scene here, food is it's just so different. I mean, I, growing up in rural New South Wales, you couldn't get much further from Bangkok, to be honest, in every single sense of the term, right? Growing up on a small farm, half about an hour south of Tari, so living in like a thriving metropolis of Bangkok where they say there's 11 million people here, but there's more like 15 million, um, you know, and just, and just the vibrancy of everything and this and everyone's happy and everyone had it's it, it's like i said the experience and you live here at first it can be a little bit confrontational to live in because it's so full-on but then once you sort of take it on the front foot and you really want to enjoy it and you want to be here you'd really submerse yourself in it and it just becomes yeah it becomes part of you it's it's amazing you like to leave here now it's not something i can think of doing take us back to uh, the farm in Tari when you're a kid what was food like for you I've got the world's greatest mother, but she was the world's worst cook. Uh, <laughs> mate, I was I was meeting meeting two veg seven nights a week, um, and then uh, then my parents uh, parents split up when I was about nine or ten, which was was what it was. Uh, then Dad moved down to a place called Pacific Palms, and Mum moved to a place called Diamond Beach, and then I was still at school. And I was, there's a little restaurant called Beaches that I started washing dishes at when I was about thirteen, thirteen or fourteen. No, it's about thirteen, I think with Graham Kelly and I was like, oh, well, this is a bit of fun. And I just sort of fell in love with the energy of the kitchen as much as anything, you know. Um, but as for culinary backgrounds growing up, not, uh, not so much. In the early days with your, uh, when you were first uh, coming out of career as a chef, what were the really important sort of moments that uh, helped guide you to become the chef that you are? Oh, mate. Uh, I think probably my birthday with my father at Rockpool on George Street, the original, where I sort of after work, after dinner, I was just so blown away, walked up to the pass and Khan Dennis, Andy Evans and Neil were standing on the pass because that was back in 1996, 97. And I was asked for a job and Neil's like, Neil's like, what? <laughs> Maybe it's 98, I can't remember, or the year. But, yeah, so then I, he said, oh, I'll come back tomorrow. And then anyway, that's, how, so I first, that's when I first started working with Neil back in those days. And then the years I spent at Bank were uh, really interesting, um, seeing that was all those guys that went on to really sort of forge out the early noughties of Sydney cuisine. And that's some really talented cooks. I mean, Justin North, Matthew Camp, all those guys, you know, the uh, Daryl, you know, Fat Colin Fastnitch, for Christ's sake. You know, these guys really, these what legends they all were, that they, what they did to the dining scene in the early noughties in Sydney. I mean, and then that was a sort of really different environment to be in. Um, yeah, I mean, but just working for those guys and chatting and hearing all those stories about Europe and all that sort of thing. So it's like, and then I went off to, did my two-year stint in London and worked at Le Gavroche for a while, which was really, really interesting. A um, lot, of, lot of fun doing that. Then I was, yeah, um, yeah, that's really it, I guess. And then, I mean, to the pinnacle of where I worked and the most fortunate thing I've ever done was the opportunity to work at the French Laundry with Thomas. Like that was just that was just absolute kitchen utopia, incredible. TK is just such a legend of a human, 
I mean, <laughs> not even a chef. He's just a legend of a human. Um, Do you have any stories of, of that time working with Thomas Keller and sort of what influence it had on you? Oh, mate, when you sort of, when you front up there, it's just like, I mean, I was really lucky there was another antipode in there with Phil Wood, also probably one, probably one of Australia's best. Is he young anymore? No, he's not, is he? He's old like me. <laughs> but absolutely, I mean, Phil did Phil did really well there. So, I mean, work, walking to that kitchen, seeing how much Phil was crushing it, I was really like, oh, shit, got to really try really hard. Um, and then and the, main, the proudest moment of my career was winning the Core Award at the French Laundry, which is something that I hold very dear to my heart. Um, you know, so I don't think any other Australians had won it. Um, and that was really cool, but just... It was just, you can't just pinpoint one little story. I mean, I was really fortunate. I got to travel quite a bit with TK and do a lot of dinners and events with him, like Pebble Beach Food and Wine and all that sort of stuff. Where, and you're going down there, hanging out with Alain Passard and Danielle Boulard and TK and all these guys, and, and then cooking with TK and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, there's not just one sort of story. But I mean, even playing golf with TK and Corey, you know, my buddy, my, my buddy and I, Mark, who was the butcher who'd been at the laundry for about five, five years and I got there and he stayed there for like another two or three. I mean, the guy's a, he's nuts. He's seven and a half years at the French laundry, for Christ's sake. Um, and like, so we, we came up with the idea of having the French laundry cup that uh, Mark and I went against TK and Corey. And of course, Corey stands on the first tee and says, you have to give us a shot of hole. And we're like, what? No. <laughs> And funnily enough, TK and Corey won by like three shots. Yeah, really weird, right? Um, but the cooking stuff, I mean, you know, just those really amazing times when you're just standing there, you're working, you're working really hard and you're pushing as hard as you can and TK would just walk in, open up your drawers or just start tasting your butter sauces and start having a chat with you during service when Corey's on the pass expecting you not to be having a chat with TK, to put it really mildly. You mentioned that you walked into uh, Rockpool and asked for a job and your career with Neil Perry was almost a decade. Tell us about that time. It started in Sydney. Um, what was it like when you first started working in that kitchen? Well, so I originally started at uh, Bistro Mars, which is Neil's, one of Neil's first restaurants, or I don't know, over in Rush Cutters Bay at the, what was that? I can't remember what the hotel was called. It's changed names, that, changed names a few times. <clears throat> um, so that's where I started with Neil for a year or so there. Um, and then it was more the case of, then it was what, after that I went to Paramount briefly, then Bank, and then I ran into Neil actually at the laundry and we got talking, we're having a chat. Mm. Uh, and then when I came back, it was I was back in Sydney. I lived in Sydney and I really, I really loved it in the late 90s. It was a lot of fun. I lived in North Bondi, which was cool. And then I came back from the laundry in 20, uh, end of 2009, and then I was living back literally two doors down from our house on Curlewis Street. I just, I hated the place. I just hated Sydney. It was horrible. But I came back to work. I mean, the, the work was fun. I mean, Phil uh, Phil came back earlier than me and he took over from uh, Mike McInerney at Rockpool. And then so I came back and I was just hanging out with some mates and working in a little restaurant in North Sydney for a little while while I, see, while I was seeing what I wanted to do uh, with uh, Tom Hoff and, um, Brian De La Mosa over at Catalonia, which was so was one of the most fun times for cooking in my life. We had uh, Chonzi, who used to call him. He was awesome. Like, he was really with his flavor. It was just the two of us cooking for a 120-seat restaurant, really. It was, real, it was loads of fun. Um, <clears throat> a few beers were drank. A few laughs were had. You know, it was really good. And then Phil got me to come and join him at, uh, back at Rockpool, which was amazing. It was, was really, really cool. I remember they had really beautiful services where Phil and I were just cooking away, having fun, 
and Neil would sit at the at the ladder counter there and just we'd have a chat and just cook with it. Was, that was a really, really cool time. And I promised Phil I'd give him three years. I gave him 11 months because <laughs> I, I was out playing golf with Neil and we got talking about Bar and Grill Purse and the opportunity and I was like, because I was just, I really was hating Sydney. Um, sorry to say that, all the Sydney siders. I know you love it heaps, but I don't. Sorry. I'm I'm unapologetic, I guess. Um, but then I got the opportunity to go to Perth to open up the bar and grill, and that's yeah, that was that was amazing. What was it like pulling that restaurant together, bringing that to Perth? The, the dining landscape there has evolved quite a lot over the last decade. But what was it like being part of that sort of beginning of that evolution? Oh, mate, it was awesome. I mean, being to go, getting to go over there and <clears throat> be part, be with Neil, right on the coattails, if you will, if you will not. But if you will, that's what happened. It's Neil. Um, then I was just there along for the ride, making sure we didn't stuff it up too much. Um, but no, it was, it was really good that we were really warmly embraced in Perth by most people. There, of course, there's your tall poppy people that sort of tried to bring us down and all that sort of thing and saying, why this, why that's so, like, well, mate, because it's Neil Perry. You're not Neil Perry. So just if you, if you want to be, be Neil Perry, work like he does and do what he's done. And then you might have the chance, right? But until then, just let us open our restaurant. There was a little bit of that, but mostly we were so warmly embraced. We were literally the first night we opened the doors, we had 400 and something people. And it stayed a really busy restaurant for a really long time. Neil is renowned for the connection he has with producers and doing not too much to to it uh, before it lands on the plate. Uh, what's some of the connections that you made in WA with producers that were really important with what you were doing at Rockpool? <laughs> Yeah, that was also something not only, not only from Neil, but which Matt, he massively is an absolute champion of it in Australia, which is fantastic. That's also something that was sort of bred into us at the laundry as well, you know, where we'd go out and have to harvest our own Tokyo turnips or harvest our own radishes. And you really get a sense of one, you've just picked it. So don't, don't overcook it because you have to go and pick it again and you don't have time. Um, and all that sort of thing. They had to come back and, and that's what re- immediately drew me back to go and work with Neil because it's like, is like I said, is one of the only guys that walks, walk, and talks, talk. Um, but the 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 market was quite like one of my it was quite funny when I was actually doing my training at Barangal Sydney, and I flew over for a weekend to start looking at suppliers and interviewing staff and stuff. I um I had a first meeting with a couple of fish purveyors who will name nameless at the stage, and they said, "Yeah, mate, you'll be able to get a lug of barramundi, and we'll be able to fly in some salmon." And I was like, "Oh," I said, "That's that could be a problem because Neil and I." Well, Neil especially hates barramundi and salmon. He doesn't, I don't know if I could say that, but neither is a big fan of barramundi or salmon in that sort of sense. And they're like, oh, that's all you can get. And I was like, mate, you, there's how many thousands of kilometres of coastline is there here? Is there no one fishing for anything else? I've heard about jewfish. I've heard about all this other stuff. Oh, yeah, all right. I suppose we could look at that. That'd be nice if you didn't mind. <laughs> but then to be honest, I mean, there's a couple of guys there that once I started hunting around a bit more and, wasn't seen as such an outsider. There's a young bloke called Matthew Beagley who was running a fish shop called Partridges who I met through a friend of mine from London, actually. It was her father that used to uh, know Maddie. And so I said, and the one thing that drew me immediately, the first fish meeting I had was in a boardroom in this little office off South Terrace in Fremantle. The second, the first time I met Maddie, he was dry filleting fish in his shop in Claremont. And he's like, yeah, he's a large-in-life character. Not sure what he's up to these days, but he was amazing back then. Um, and then he's just like, it was really quite cool because he was just, he just purchased the business, mortgaged himself up to the absolute hilt. And then he was just like, mate, this is what we need. I need Rockpool. 
And I said, great, we need you. And so then we were able to, he was able to grow with us, which is amazing. The, the, the product he was getting, I mean, still to, still to this day, the greatest eating fish cooked in the world is Western Australian coral trout. Oh, so contentious, I know, for so many things and so many people. But, mate, if you can tell me a better piece of cooked, roasted piece of fish than coral trout, then I don't believe you, to be honest. Um, yeah, so I mean, so that's when we got we started getting access to those things, and then, you know, and as were people, as was people knew that we were opening up and these things, I got approached by a few guys, but like back that was in 2010, end of 2010, beginning of 2011, I believe, or was it 09 and 10? Anyway, about 10 years ago, and then so the market was really only just coming to itself. I mean, there was, it was hard to find that those little things, but I mean, you know, a lot of guys really championing. championing. WA Produce that came along not too many years after, like Jed Gerrard. I mean, if you want to know anything about WA Produce, talk to that bloke. He knows everything. Uh, <laughs> super nice guy. We did a couple of those delicious tastings together. and he, he was really, really good, and he really helped bring a lot of these really small producers out. You'd have all this really wacky stuff, like a lady would turn up with like a two-kilo bag of walnuts and say, oh, these are our walnuts. I was like, oh, great, they're nice. Can I buy She's like, no, that's all of them. You're like, well, <laughs> Why did you bring me one bag? She's, are they nice? I'm like, yeah, they're good. I said, okay, we'll, we'll grow more. All right, good job. All right, see you, in a, see you in a couple of years. You know, that sort of stuff. I mean, but there's the, the best supplies. I mean, work with the guys. There's already guys in some really good regenerative, regenerative stuff down south as well, like uh, – uh, Blue Ridge Marin, you know, they started realising that they didn't have enough oxygen in their dam, so then they started doing this a really nice trout and all that sort of thing. Um, and then there's some really amazing, when we first went over there, the beef suppliers was hard. I mean, as you well know, WA's arid, as well, Australia's arid, but WA's particularly arid. And so there's a problem where we're trying to get this local beef and the problem was we were, having to, we were forced to buy all these two-tooths animals and it's just like mate they don't have any flavor and so like, yeah, well, we can't afford to feed them it's like well <laughs> it's not we can if we if we can if we can bring ox from tasmania at the same price or cheaper than you're selling as two tooth it's like well i'm not going to buy you two tooth I'm, I'm really sorry but then that was in the first couple of years then some guys really came along doing some amazing like some of the best grass-fed beef is from blackwood valley they were doing some amazing things um and yeah, and, that's, and then these had all these guys growing like really beautiful vegetables. They had a little, a little uh, oh, I don't want to say it wrong, but they're, they're probably not going to listen. There's, I think they were a German family, really lovely, and they're out in the Perth Hills in Bickley, and they grew some of the finest, sweetest white asparagus I've ever had. Not, not like the big, thick German stuff. Like the, yeah, but this stuff they were growing was just incredible. But they literally, they would produce 14 kilos a season. You know, I used, I used to buy it all. You know, yes, we, you know, we just said, what do you got this week? Peter, what do you, what do you got? What do you got? We're, we're, set, we're literally selling out at 7.30 every night. And he's like, oh, Dan, you have to relax. I'm like, well, well sure, I'll relax, but, you know. Um, but, yeah, but it sort, of, it, it sort of grew and it evolved all the time, right? And then, we, of course, you had the management truffles, which from what I see on Instagram, what everyone's posting these days, um, David Coomer's doing really well. I haven't tasted any of his stuff, but, I mean, Al Blakers used to be the man, um, and he was madder than a cut snake. He was awesome. Um, then we had a couple of other companies coming along. But then, to be honest, 2014, 2015, truffles in WA really hit the skids. This is probably the most polite way to say it. Uh, it was around then, 2014, 2015. Yeah, it wasn't great. It was just so, oh, oh well, that's, that's the way it is. Um, but, yeah, but there's, there's so many other really cool little things going on there now. So it's like, yeah. 
Well, what's it like where you are now with access to, to quality produce? Do you ever strike a, strike a balance between local and, and bringing in produce? Mate, like I said, when I first came over here to Waldorf at Bull and Bear, uh, it was basically the whole menu was being, all the produce was being imported. Um, and then they, they, were re- they couldn't understand why they were running like a 54% food cost. Um, so it's pretty easy, mate, when, you, when you're flying in COS letters for, and you're paying 1,200 baht a kilo for COS letters, you can probably find that locally and you can. I mean, the thing about Thailand is it's the most, one of the, it's the most amazing country in the world to start with. And then it's like the different climates it covers and the different soils it has and the farming that happens here, the vegetables you have access to are just amazing. I mean, if you actually look for things here, like really look and all that sort of stuff, there's, there's incredible stuff to be found here. So, I mean, we got it down. I was started using as much local stuff as you can. Um, it is a bit hard with the seafood though, obviously, but I'm saying that uh, the, thai, the the river prawns, Ayataya river prawns are incredible. Um, there's also some good tiger prawns coming from out towards Pattaya and the squid, which is weird it's warm, obviously warm water because we're so close to the equator. Um the squid from Pattaya is absolutely amazing, you know, and it's it's and when you're talking about sustainable fishing and this and that, it's it's guys catching it with hand lines, you know what I mean, on little boats that go out and catch a few kilos a night and bring that back into market and sell it. So, I mean, there, there is all that sort of stuff going on. When it comes to beef and those sorts of things, it's a different kind of animal because they're all working animals. Um, so that might, be a little bit, that might be a little while off yet. But um, when it comes to fruit and vegetables and that's, I mean, fruit, in Thailand, you can't even compare it to anywhere else in the world. It's the best. It's just incredible, right? Is there any um, fruit that's stood out for you while you've been there that um, you've utilised and, and got to know well that you can tell us about? Uh, mate, well, I mean, favourite things to eat. Like it's one of the coolest things to do when you're just, like on the, the small soys around my house. You'll just hear like this loudspeaker go off and there'll be a guy driving a Hilux with like uh, half a tonne of uh, mangosteens in the back of his back of his, in his tray, right? And you go down there, you can buy a kilo of mangosteens for about 45 baht, which is about, at the moment, about $1.80. You can buy a, you can, a mangosteen in Australia, it'll cost you how much, you know? There's, I love mangosteens are incredible. The mango seasons when the when mango season when they're on is incredible. I mean, but one of my favourite fruits over here is just really standard, is like the chompu, which is like the rose apple. And it's just super simple. I mean, and passion fruits here are just amazing. I mean, there's so many, uh, there's just so many different, different things and um, papaya i mean what the really what amazing thing another amazing thing is that with all the still street food vendors there's these guys that just stand there and cut fruit all day right and you can buy like this the most amazing papaya ever in your life for 80 cents like a half a papaya um yeah pineapples are incredible so it's all just really good I know that you're building to open at the Standard Hotel. That sort of influence and um, immersing yourself in the food culture and food and food of Thailand is that affecting the way you cook and the way you um, match ingredients? Um, probably less so. I mean, fusion and that style has never been something that I've really been massively into. Um, we we will. If we're going, we'll have Thai things on the menu, but they'll be straight Thai, and then we'll have Western things. It'll be straight Western. It's not really, and that's not really a, stand, a standard brand kind of things to mix things up like that. If we're going to do it, we want it to be as, as good as it can be, just uh, as it is. Um, the standard brand itself is really, really interesting. It's a really small, uh, we're not really small. We're smallish. When there's six hotels in the states, there's one in the Maldives, there's one in London, um, and they're all about 
bespoke experiences and really different um, different sort of hospitality. And that'll be sort of that will be represented a little bit in our culinary offerings as much as you sort of can. I mean, I mean, not that anyone's really doing anything new with food anymore. Other, everyone's just doing the best they can with stuff and making as nice as they can and cooking what they want to cook, which is quite cool, really, when you think about it. Um, you don't have to be always trying to push the envelope just to get, just to be cool. Um, yeah, so I mean, no, not really. No, that's it. <laughs> well, you mentioned um, what it took to get a good beef program over in WA using local producers, and you mentioned that something like beef in Thailand is probably years off. But uh, are you importing beef from Australia, and, and what's it like trying to get quality uh, for you to use? Yeah, mate, we'll be well, before pre-COVID when I first got here, it was no problem at all. There was as many flights as you want per week and it was all coming up. You order it and then it can come up the next in the next 72 hours. Um, once Australia did what they did with the borders and everything, that's what they chose, they, so they thought they had to do, which, you know, they did what they did. Uh, it made it quite hard to get things out, which also is something else you had to sort of work with. But also then... It wasn't really a massive problem because there was no tourists in Thailand either, right? So, I mean, you, you, the, your need for product wasn't as, well, you know, and you don't need to buy a pallet of beef because you don't have any guests because uh, there's no people here. Um, but, yeah, so when it comes to the standard, well, we, we're driving like a, probably a 90% Australian beef program. I did work with some, did work with some American beef at Waldorf, which, I, which wasn't great, to be honest. It was okay, but nothing compared to... Blackmores or Rangers or these other sort of guys, and really exciting. I had a chat to the legend that is Corey Costello yesterday about getting in touch with Copper Tree Farms about using some of their stuff. So that could be really exciting. Even just trying to use their table butter as well. You know, it's it's having this point of difference up here because there's only a few suppliers and they've been bringing in the same stuff for quite some time. So there's quite a few high end steakhouses here, but they all sort of use the same products. Um, so we're trying to just chat to people about how I can get some different things up here. Despite COVID and the lockdowns, have you been able to get out and explore the Bangkok food scene? Mate, it's, that's one of the, that's one of the probably the saddest things is like the areas I live in. I'm, so I'm in uh Sukhumvit area from uh, soy, Sukhumvit soy 24. This used to be a really vibrant Sukhumvit soy 22 and 24, really vibrant for restaurants. Like literally every second shop was a little restaurant. Um, when I cycle around and have a look around, when I go, just, go for a cruise around it's really sad most almost all those places are gone it's going to be very interesting to see who's got the confidence to come back and who's willing to have another crack um a lot of the street food vendors are still out there and you can you get some amazing stuff on the street which is really really cool um but yeah it's 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 pretty sad to be honest and breaks your heart you mentioned that um you don't see yourself leaving bangkok what, what is it that you love about being there it's just home it's just it's just become a real part. Like, like I was saying before, it's just one of those places where you either live here to visit. I think to visit is what it is, but to live here, you either just fall in love with the place and just have the best time of your life. And it's incredible or you don't. And if you're on that side that does, it's just to get to the point. I mean, look at the guys like Tomo. Tomo has been here forever. I mean, you know, and he, like, uh, I had my, I celebrated my 40th birthday at his restaurant, Axon. You know, we had a, we had a really good chat. And it's just, he's like, what do you, what do you find? What do you, what do you like the most? And I was like, I don't know. It's just got, it's just got this sense. It's just this feeling, a sense of community. It's a sense of everything. It's this massive city and you don't really travel a lot out of your areas because traffic is notoriously bad here. But even just hanging out in your communities and people are happy. And 
I don't know. It's just, you just it's just home. This really feels like home. You mentioned that some uh, restrictions might ease in the coming weeks, and that you might have an opportunity to open soon. Um, what do you What are you really looking forward to when that arrives? Mate, cooking again. <laughs> 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 to be honest, just cooking again. I mean, we're opening up. We're the hotels at the Mahanakon building, which is really iconic in Bangkok. It's this really cool, pixelated-looking build, like chunks that have fallen out. Uh, it's at Chong Nonsi BTS. It's an um, incredible-looking architectural feat, and it's got the highest rooftop bar, and it's got the, it's got the level 76 is our highest uh, highest bar. We've got restaurants on 76, 74, and then down, and then we've got the, uh, some residences in between and the hotels in that as well. So, I mean, it's, I'm just really looking forward to – I mean, the hardest thing for me, Huck, has just been work from home. I mean, what a ridiculous concept for someone who left school when they were 15 to cook and make people happy. Okay, so now you need to sit – I mean, being in an office is one thing, right? Where you're at an office, it's at least I'm sitting there with my DOFB and my, and my F&B manager and the GM's there. We've got our team because we're a team of about 20-odd now. But you still have that human interaction. And then it's like, okay, work from home. And you're like, what? It's like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the, it's the most foreign concept in the world. I mean, it just makes no sense. I don't know. People that say they love it, oh, good on them. If you, if you can put yourself through this and enjoy it, then I have amazing respect for you. I can't. I need to be around humans. And then you want to be cooking and stuff, right? Well, very much looking forward to hearing um, what you do and maybe even experiencing it uh, in the not-too-distant future as well over at The Standard in Bangkok. Daniel, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Mate, absolute pleasure. Thanks for your time. Okay, it was great. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.